The Talk Shop. It's four minutes after eight. You're on the talk shop on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. My name is Naledi Moleo, taking your SMSs on 34701. We're talking uh, Ebola. It's been one year since the since Ebola was declared a, a public health emergency in Sierra Leone. Uh, th- th- this report that's just recently come out of uh, MSF highlights the evolution of the outbreak and, and exposes the global failures for which over thousands of people have paid with their lives. I'm joined on the line by Dr. Gil van Katzen, uh, MSF's medical coordinator for South Africa and Lesotho as part of Doctors Without Borders' uh, Ebola response. Gil uh, spent between the 14th of, of November till the 27th of December in Liberia. He was mostly based in Monrovia where 60% of Ebola cases were originating from, uh, but also accompanied the outbreak response teams to the west, south, and deep south of the countries, um, and also to the rural parts and deep forest areas. So we're going to unpack what has come out of MSF's Ebola report with Dr. Van Katzen. Uh, Doctor, good evening and welcome to the talk shop. Good evening, Naledi. Very happy to be with you on the show tonight. I think I, I got the report, I think it was on Sunday night, and, and looking through it, 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 you know, you look at Ebola, and I think it's a conversation that South Africans are uncomfortable to have because it is such a frightening uh, uh, disease. So let's go, let's go right to the beginning and, and how MSF started getting involved, and, and then we'll, we'll build up and talk about where we are now. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the beginning, actually the beginning was, before MSF got involved, the beginning was in December uh, to 2013, where Ebola jumped species from a bat to a little two-year-old in uh, in uh, the forest in, in Guinea, and then uh, started a uh, completely undetected outbreak. His mother died, he died, his mother died, uh, um, several people in the village died. Nobody understood what was happening because Ebola was really unknown in that area. Mm. And it took until March 2014 uh, before the, the, the health authorities and MSF were called to the scene. By that time, uh, Ebola had already spread to four different uh, um, counties in Guinea and to Conakry, the capital. And, and so we, we were already very late uh, when, it, when it started. Mm. Okay, so I, I want to just take some calls, 891 We're taking a look at the Ebola report that's just come out of MSF. But for, for MSF, 2014 was, was possibly one of the most challenging years you've ever had because you had so many firsts in 2014. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, first of all, we never, ever imagined uh, to, to have to face an Ebola epidemic like this one. All the previous Ebola epidemics were uh, confined to uh, limited areas, um, a maximum of 500 cases, um, contained within, usually within a few weeks. Uh, um, and whilst this, this was a completely different outbreak, uh, this was already uh, and in, in, many dif- in many, many different sites by the time it was detected. And then uh it was very hard to to get the necessary support um uh, during months and months where we saw the the epidemic was um 
increasing in Guinea, spreading in Sierra Leone, and then uh, uh, starting in Liberia, and where NSF was crying for help because mm. this was far beyond the capacity of health um, ministries of health in Guinea, and then later Sierra Leone and Liberia, and beyond the capacity of MSF and the and, and the private NGO actors, and it. It took really until October, November before uh, the international response kicked in. Mm. I want to actually just talk about that journey, uh, uh, that journey into getting that international response, because MSF obviously tried various different things, um, also uh, engaging the UN and the UN Security Council. Let's talk about that journey there for for MSF. Yeah. So. You know, in, already in March, uh, MSF called the epidemic unprecedented mm. because it was unusual to be in so many different places, and we we saw that it was going to be very, very difficult to well, it it will need a lot of uh, external input to con- to control. And at that time, um, we were called we were, people said we exaggerated both. Governments in Guinea, and then later Sierra Leone and uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, were saying no. But you know, this is a, an exaggeration. This is just like the other outbreaks. Then, in June, uh, when the epidemic was flaring again in Guinea, and where it was uh, clear that it was also flaring in Sierra Leone, we said, look, the, the outbreak is completely out of control, and uh, we're calling for additional. Uh, capacity mm. again. There was a very lukewarm uh, response to to that, mm. and it took until what eighth of August, where the the World Health Organization finally declared Ebola a, a public health emergency, mm. as you as you called it earlier. But by that time, uh, in August was was a nightmare. Uh, by that time, in Monrovia. There were so many cases, and the response was so insufficient that we we had a treatment center that at at the peak of the epidemic uh, we had to close 23 hours we, we had to close the gates 23 hours a day because mm. the center was completely full, and uh, we can only admit people were um, uh, once beds were made free. And so you had people dying in front of the in front of the treatment center. Mm. You had people dying in the streets. You had bodies being thrown in the streets. Uh, um, that was probably the worst state of panic uh, that, that we've seen. And, and until we managed to increase capacity, and in the, the the Liberian Ministry of Health actually started to open treatment centers as well. Uh, and, and the epidemic started to go down in Liberia, and if, as if this wasn't enough, the same scenario was repeated in uh, Sierra Leone mm. a few months later, as if, you know, we can't learn from our mistakes. And so the, the, the same type of, of disaster scenario was repeated in, uh, in Freetown in, uh, in December, really, last year. Yeah, let's look at some of the measures that that MSF actually had put in place, and well, still has, I suppose. But you don't have new cases uh, since the beginning of March, is that correct? Oh, we don't have new cases in Liberia. Mm. Uh, well, actually, there is there, no. There has been one new case in Liberia mm. since the beginning of March, but in Sierra Leone and in Guinea, 
the epidemic continues at higher levels than than any previous outbreaks. It has gone down compared to the peak uh, of last year, but it's uh, it's not over at all, and much more is needed in uh, in Guinea and Sierra Leone. So you're asking about measures. You know, yeah. what does it take to to control an Ebola outbreak? Mm. Well, first of all we need to create isolation centers where you can admit patients uh, to, to to provide uh, uh, medical support but also to prevent uh, transmission to their family and to to their closed ones that's that's the first measure mm. the, the second measure is a uh, very good um, epidemiological surveillance so that means identify every case and then identify every contact, every person who has been in touch with, with that case. And we're doing that in Rovia. And I was very much involved into doing that in um, in a remote site. So when we hear about an outbreak, we send out a team uh, of people. We, we, we go into the village. We try and find out every person who has touched the patient. And then we start monitoring that person mm. for 21 days, which is the incubation period for symptoms of uh of the disease, and if they have symptoms, then we isolate them quickly. Mm. Uh, the, the third measure is uh, safe burials, uh, because uh, in bodies, dead bodies, are full of Ebola virus and are extremely infectious. A lot of the transmission early on happened when when people were in in, in um, funerary rites were were um, embracing bodies or touching bodies. Mm. Uh, and so we're in, getting infected that way. So we have burial teams who go every time there is a, a suspected Ebola death. They go to the house. They completely disinfect the house. They're in their suits that you've seen all over. Uh, they then 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 bag the body and they bury that body in a in a in a safe way mm. and in a human way, so that that doesn't scare. Uh, the family and the and the, the community, which brings us to probably the most important part, which is community mobilization. Mm. Because Ebola is such a scary disease, and because it kills the close ones, the people who are actually taking care of the the sick and the the healthcare workers, um, there is a need to constantly engage with the community to to ensure that they understand uh, uh, what is the disease, how to prevent it. Uh, what to do when somebody falls sick, and uh, that we prevent what what happened until recently in Guinea, where people were so scared that they thought uh, it's healthcare workers bringing the disease and they attacked healthcare workers. Mm. So community mobilization is extremely important and takes a lot of uh, energy and resources. Anthropologists, uh, peer educators. Uh, health promoters, people going to the community, speaking to people, mm. and then um, and then you need to take care of making non-Ebola health services safe. Because what happened at the beginning? Because people didn't know it was Ebola. Patients with Ebola were admitted in hospitals. Mm. Nurses got infected. Mm. Doctors got infected. We have hospitals where you had ten health staff dying within a week, and this resulted to a complete shutdown of the health services uh, in Liberia mm. and in uh, Sierra Leone. At the, uh, when, when I was in Monrovia, it, you didn't have one public hospital that uh, would admit pregnant women. So if you had 
if you were pregnant, you had to deliver. There just was nowhere to go. If you had a car accident in Monrovia, mm. it was almost impossible to find mm. a hospital. So, and that meant and that meant few measures for malaria as well, doctor. That meant no more malaria treatment mm. uh, from. Uh, <laughs> in the public sector. So what, what MSF did was actually distributing millions of uh, malaria treatments, blanket malaria treatments to the, to the population to decrease the burden of malaria uh, and to prevent uh, malaria, malaria-related mortality. Mm. Um, no more malaria treatment, so many people, children dying from malaria. Also mm. no more vaccinations. Mm. Which, which is why we, we start seeing, uh, cases of measles now coming up in, in West Africa and why, why there's a call from, uh, from WHO to say, okay, now we need to start revaccinating, restarting the, the vaccination programs because mm. otherwise we'll have the next wave of epidemics, not Ebola, but measles, mm. polio, all the, all the other uh, infectious diseases for which we vaccinate. So, yeah, it's very complex. It, it paralyzes the health system, it, and it necessitates a very broad response. I think that, I'm just going to jump in there because I know you're going to talk about uh, uh, tracing contacts and so forth and, and other measures that MSF took. But I, I want to look at what is uh, potentially a contentious issue when it was brought up before the UN Security Council, that being uh, the, the, the suggestion that forced quarantines should not be used. And, and, and I think a lot of suggestions, obviously, from the international community encouraging for forced quarantines uh, to be made use of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, forced quarantine is a measure that is... Very li- well, that does increase fear, mm. and also that increases suspicion against uh, healthcare workers and against governments. Now, in an Ebola epidemic, you don't want suspicion, and you don't want to increase fear, which is already very high. So, what forced quarantine does, it leads to driving the epidemic underground. With, if your uh, neighbor gets uh, almost imprisoned in his house because that's what forced quarantine is uh, because he's an Ebola suspect uh, and you start having symptoms you're not going to want to you know to go to the treatment center and report yourself you, you you're going to wait things out and that is exactly what is spreading the epidemic people not trusting the health system not trusting the authorities to go to the treatment centers and so whatever measures that are that are not building trust are actually making things worse. Mm. And forced quarantine is making things worse from 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 MSF's perspective, which you need to do. And even so, in Monrovia, one of the problems was that the treatment center uh, LY3, the, the biggest treatments ever built, at 400 beds, um, that there were walls around the center, so people couldn't see what was happening inside. Outside. Mm. Well, that's not. Uh, yeah, inside the center. Mm. People from outside couldn't see what was happening inside. Mm. That's not great. In other treatment centers that we built, we try to make it as open possible, everything transparent, so people from the community can actually see uh, see what's happening inside, uh, discuss with patients, and uh, that that transparency builds trust. They see some people are getting better because you know the, the mortality. Uh, rate at the moment is sitting around 50, 50, 60 percent, which is very bad mm. because it means one in two patients dies, but it also means one in two patients gets better. 
uh, and and uh, being in a treatment center greatly increases your chances of survival. So yeah. if you see that and you see it's better to be in there, you, you're going to be more likely to go to treatment centers and to trust the authorities. So, yeah, I mean, forced quarantine, definitely not. Um, the, the other thing that was for MSF internally very controversial that we called for um, civil and military um, assets to be made available against um, biological threats and, uh, you know, MSF never calls for military uh, interventions. Mm. And this is one of the very, very few times where MSF did because uh, um, the emergency was such that um, we thought there is no other way to get rid of the epidemic than also to call on, on, on military uh, intervention or mm. military assets to be made available to to help uh, contain this outbreak. Mm. But, I mean, you, you talk about the international community there and, and the UN Security Council, but let's go back to the World Health Organization. Um, on the 8th of August, finally Ebola uh, declared as a public health emergency of, of international concern. And, and the view of MSF in the, in the delayed response from the World Health Organization, the impact that the World Health Organization has had since then as well. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't know where you want to go with this question, but so definitely, and the World Health Organization recognizes themselves. They mm. have been very slow uh, to acknowledge the extent of the crisis, and they've been slow to call for a for a international response. But then they did mm. uh, uh, on the on the eighth of August, and they have stepped up. Uh, the res- they have stepped up the response. And so when we are saying there's a, there's a failure of the the international community, it's definitely not to uh, point out the, the World Health Organization as a single culprit. It's really it's a collective uh, failure. And after that, so okay, the, the UN created UN Mir, which was a, uh, the first medical United Nations coordination body was supposed to coordinate uh, the overall response, not extremely successfully. Uh, I must say that the World Health Organization has uh, later stepped up their response, mm. uh, changed a lot of the officials uh, on the ground, um, and has now also this, uh, um, also made made very good uh, regulatory calls by saying uh, we uh, it is ethically justifiable to use experimental medicine. Uh, in this case, uh, we should fast-track uh, trials on vaccines. Uh, we should fast-track trials on um, diagnostic tests because if, if we want to get rid of a, this epidemic, we have to uh, increase the, the standard response, the ones, one I described earlier. Mm. But we also need uh, to, to invest in research into vaccines which is happening now into treatment because there's you know there's good chances that there are some treatments out there that would increase survival and then extremely important get very accurate uh, diagnostic tests that are um, more easy to roll out so mm-hmm. rapid tests uh, a little bit like uh, the rapid test that we use for HIV, for HIV yes. or the yeah, or the gene expert technology that mm. we use for uh, TB, because that would allow um, putting these tests in health facilities 
would allow health facilities to be much more much safer. Because at the moment, if somebody comes with fever to a clinic in uh, Sierra Leone, mm. you don't know if that patient has Ebola, malaria, mm. uh, or just flu. And so you have to wait until you have to test the patient and, and, and isolate until you know that this is not Ebola. Now, at the moment, we're using centralized laboratories, uh, with, and it takes a long time before you get the results. Mm. If we had rapid tests, you could have a triage center at the entrance of every clinic, of every hospital, and you, you, you could actually much more rapidly triage patients who, who pose a risk and who, who need to wait, and all the others who need other health care, mm. pregnant women, people with malaria, children uh, uh, with, with diarrhea, etc. And at the moment, without a test like that, it's much more difficult. Yeah. Let me just update our listener. We, I'm chatting to Dr. Gil van Katsum, MSF's medical coordinator for South Africa and uh, Lesotho, but he was part of MSF's Ebola response and, and so spent just over a month in, in 2014 in Liberia, uh, in Monrovia, where 60% of Ebola cases were originating from. We're just looking through the Ebola report and bringing you some of the, uh, some of the standing out points that are in uh, that report. Give me a call on 0891104207. That number again is 0891104207. Send your SMSs to 34701. I think, Doctor, obviously anywhere where there are lives lost, you can't say that you've had a success story. But um, the, the, the response in Nigeria, Senegal and Mali is one that perhaps in comparison could be called a success story with regard to the quick responses uh, that came from MSF and from government in averting disaster. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, I think you, you, you can call it a success. You're completely right. And it shows what, what could have happened with, uh, with the epidemics in the other countries as well. In Senegal, you had one case. Uh, you had an immediate response. You actually had preparation by the, the government of Senegal. They mm. were prepared. They knew what to do if there is a case. And you had immediate tracing of all the contacts of that case. You, you had good isolation. The people were prepared. Uh, and it was limited to that one case. Uh, in Nigeria, you, it, it was extremely scary mm. because... Uh, you know, that was the nightmare scenario, Ebola in Lagos, uh, uh, one of the biggest cities in Africa. Yeah. Um, it could have been a total disaster. Um, there was also a quite vigorous response of the, of the, of the outbreak uh, response team uh, that was actually, they had a lot of experience with polio mm. um, in Nigeria. And uh, in, in you, you know, in all those countries, you have technical support uh, of MSS and of other organizations. Uh, in, in Nigeria, they monitored more than 2,000 contacts, um, um, and they managed to limit it to 21 cases. And then in Mali, we had eight cases. In Mali, it was a bit more difficult, and, and um, Definitely, there was a risk for for uh, the outbreak to to expand, but also it shows that when you are there quickly, when you isolate patients quickly, when you monitor all the contacts, and you ensure that uh, um, people with Ebola are buried safely, mm. that there is training of all the health staff around so that people recognize a patient with Ebola to 
against Ebola because that's one of the pro- that's one of the big problems at the beginning of the epidemic in Guinea and Sierra Leone and Liberia is that uh, health staff had never seen had never heard of Ebola, so they didn't know what it was, mm. and they would just treat it without uh, the necessary precautions, which is why you had between five and eight hundred health staff in the region who died as doctors, nurses, mm. uh, uh, health assistants in a in a region where you already have extremely few healthcare workers. As mm. an example, Liberia had fifty doctors for a population of four million before the epidemic. Sure. Of these fifteen or fif- between fifteen and twenty died. So that's that's a third of their doctor workforce. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's that, really that is dramatic. frightening. That yeah. is frightening. Let yeah. me take some calls on 0891-104207. That's 0891-104207. Uh, Faisal is on the line. Faisal uh, in Durban. Good evening. Welcome to the talk shop. Good evening. Mm. I would like to know if there is a link from eating wild animals to Ebola. Is there such a problem or, or it's just uh, something that people just say? Okay. Uh, Faisal, thank you for calling. Doctor, educate us. Yes. So, well, there can be a link. Uh, um, so the host of Ebola is thought to be uh, food bats, maybe insectivorous bats. And um, the, the chain of transmission is that either um, humans eat or are infected by um by bats, mm-hmm. or what's, but that's just, that happens very, very rarely, but it can happen. Mm. Or another possible way is that other animals can get infected by bats or by getting contacts with saliva or blood of bats. So, so for example, chimpanzees and, and gorillas can get infected mm. by bats. Also, uh, certain types of gazelles. And then, um, uh, Humans could get infected by eating or by g- getting in touch with blood of those animals who have actually died of Ebola. Now, right. that's extremely rare, mm. and that happens once. That's, that happened for the first case, and then once, uh, uh, once that first case is infected, then all the transmission happens from human to human. All right, you're still on the talk shop on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I think when we come back, Doctor, let's start looking into the future. Uh, talk about the success story uh, that MSF does have to share. I mean, if you talk about the the drop in, in, in new infections in various other uh, areas and still the work that needs to be done uh, as well, 0891 and send your SMSs to 34701. You're on the talk shop. The talk shop. You're still on the talk shop and we're taking a look at the Ebola report that's just come out of Doctors Without Borders. I'm chatting to Dr. Vil, uh, Dr. Gil van Katsum, MSF's medical coordinator for South Africa and Lesotho. He also was part of the, the Ebola response team and spent just over a month in Monrovia where 60% of Ebola cases were, originated for, were originating from, uh, but also accompanied the outbreak response teams to the west, south and deep south of the countries to the very rural parts and deep forest areas as well. Give me a call if you have any questions 0891-104-207 that's 0891-104-207 One thing that that can't be overlooked doctor is 
Um, the courage and bravery of MSF volunteers themselves. I have, you know, the quote here by uh, Lindy uh, Harum that says, I think it's fair to say that we are doctors without borders, but we're not without limits. Uh, we've reached our limit. It's very frustrating because I see the huge needs, but I simply don't have the human resources. And those are some of the frustrations that were coming out of MSF volunteers in August last year. The, the state of, of some of the, the, the MSF volunteers themselves and how MSF ensured that they, they kept going as well. Doctor, are you there? Have I lost Dr. Gil van Katsum? Okay, let's try and get Dr. Gil van Katsum back. Give me a call if you'd like to comment or perhaps ask a question. The number is 0891104207. Again, 0891104207. It's been a year since the uh, Ebola since Ebola was declared a public health emergency in Syria in Sierra Leone. So we're, we're really trying to trace the steps that MSF has taken in trying to deal with the outbreak in West Africa. Send your SMSs to three. 34701. That's 34701. Um, let me see who's on the line. I've got uh, Chris in Potchefstroom. Chris, good evening and welcome to the talk shop. Hey. Uh, mm. I believe we have the doctor back. We'll just, have him back, one, yes. Uh, just one question that the doctor mm. talked about. I see this whole thing. He spoke about, earlier about quick detention. And I just wanted to find out. Okay, Chris, I'm struggling to hear you. I, I think we're going to try, we have to try and call you back because there's, there's a bit of static with, that's going on with your line. Let's try again, Chris. Okay. Yes, can you hear me now? Yes, that's better. Yeah. I just wanted to ask the doctor. He talked about at the moment we are being reactionary mm. on, on Ebola. So I wanted to know this quick uh, detection system and the development thereof. What is being done and how far they with the preemptive measures to determine that in the future Okay, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to hear you, but I've gotten I've got the, the the gist of your question, and I'll pass that on to the doctor. Chris, thank you for calling in. Send your SMSs to me on three four seven zero one. That's three four seven zero one. Doctor Gill is back on the line. Uh, doctor, I just got a call from Doctor. Are you there? Yes, yes, I'm there. Okay, so I just got a call from from Chris in Potchefstroom, and you made mention of the need for rapid tests. In, in various different areas. And Chris was asking where we are in developing uh, such mechanisms. Um, so, in, at the moment, there are um, several tests that are uh, in the pipeline, and MSF um, um, is, is about to start evaluating three of them in uh, our treatment center in Conakry. Uh, those are rapid tests. And then uh, there are... Um, other tests that could be used at uh, at hospital level uh, that are also in the in the very late stages of production or that are almost ready. So this is an area of research where we're very close to um, um, making a difference, but we need to speed up um, uh, validating these tests. Mm. An SMS from Rosie that says, "How are the Ebola vaccine trials progressing, Doctor?" Uh, uh, that's uh, that's a difficult question to answer. Mm. So um, there, there are two vaccine trials ongoing. Um, we are not directly involved in running those vaccine trials. One of them is in Liberia. Given that there are extremely few cases in Liberia, I think it's, it is going to be difficult 
to to come up with significant results, but but we'll see. Another one is in in Guinea, and it's ongoing. Um, there are no interim results as yet, so I I just know that they are ongoing, uh, and and there there's more likelihood, of course, to have some um, some results in Guinea where the epidemic is still raging. Mm. But before I lost you there, I was I was asking a question about uh, how some of the volunteers, the MSF volunteers as well, fared, and and if there's perhaps you know a a, um, a bit of a therapy that's provided for them, what is what is the state of some of the the volunteers that have assisted in this process? So, you know, MSF has sent thousands of volunteers mm. as. A it has 5,000 staff on the ground, 4,000 national, more than 1,000 uh, uh, international staff. Um, people go for a relatively short period because it is so intense uh, to work in that situation. So people go for four to six weeks, now a little bit longer in, uh, in Liberia. Um, uh, people get very good short training before going and then afterwards yes there is quite a bit of support uh, you know in terms of uh, if you need psychological support it's mm. available uh, if you uh, there's a yeah one of the <laughs> one of MSF's major concerns was how do we protect our staff in a in a situation in a situation where more than 500 health staff have died and MSF themselves we had 28 of our own staff infected, of which 14 died. Uh, uh, when I was there, we had we had uh, um, two senior nurses infected with actually three senior nurses infected with Ebola. Luckily, all of them survived. But every time that happens, it's, it's very traumatic for for all the rest of the staff, and you you live in a in a state of very high tension uh, all the time. It's also difficult for both for staff, Liberian, Guinean, Sierra Leonean staff, there uh, because they are faced with a lot of stigma from their own communities mm. uh, because they were because Ebola has stigmatized and so some of them don't even tell people that they're working with Ebola because the, you get stigma in the community and we have seen that as well for returning international staff. Um, uh, where you know, in, well, you have of course followed all the stories in the U.S. Mm. where they put uh, an MSF nurse in quarantine. Um, uh, there, there have been places where where some international staff couldn't find a place to stay. That's the most extreme story I've heard. Uh, myself, I uh, I must say uh, I haven't had any of those problems. People were very understanding. My mm. family had absolutely no. No problem, and and the people in South Africa also were very very understanding, had no stigma whatsoever. So it, it, it it's different from person to person. Sure, but if if we are keen to to help out, obviously um, MSF is also raising funds for it to continue some of its work in West Africa. How do we go about assisting MSF? Uh, so how do you go about assisting MSF? There's mm-hmm. many ways. You 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 can donate. Uh, you go to the website of MSF. Uh, you can uh, you can volunteer. Uh, MSF continues to look for volunteers. Uh, 
doctors, nurses, but also administrative staff, logisticians. One of the one of the key staff, and that's not enough mentioned. One of the key staff against Ebola is water sanitation uh, mm. people, so engineers, uh, people who are actually building the treatment centers, who are uh, um, who know everything about infection control, who can go into hospitals, people who are training staff on how to protect themselves, people who are uh, putting in systems on how to ensure we produce enough chlorine, chlorine, because you use chlorine all the time in those treatment centers. Uh, massive amounts of chlorine are produced. So lots of engineers and, and water sanitation staff are used. Also, the you know the burial teams. Uh, this is all uh, done by by white sands, as we call them. Mm. Health promoters, anthropologists. There's many. So yes, you can do that, and you can spread information. You can read about Ebola, but also about you know with NSF. Of course, it's not just about Ebola. NSF is working in other emergencies in HIV, and we still face, the world is still facing a, a lot of lack of knowledge about what's really affecting uh, uh, vulnerable people in the world. We're speaking about Ebola, but at this very moment, people are dying in South Sudan, people are dying in Central African Republic, people are dying in Congo, mm. and, and often this is not being covered enough. People don't know that this is happening, and, and there also we need for a bigger response. So, you know, there's lots of things you can do. But, yeah, donate, volunteer, but also inform yourself and inform uh, others uh, about what's really happening out there. Absolutely. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me as well. If you would like to be of assistance, take a look at the MSF website. It's www.msf.org.za um, or no, just dot org, msf.org. If you if you if you type in msf.org forward slash work dash msf, uh, there there are opportunities there for you to to work in the field and volunteer for MSF. Otherwise, take a look at the the the, the website in its entirety and find out how you can perhaps donate then uh, to doctors with. Out borders. I was talking to Dr. Gil van Katzem, MSF's medical coordinator for South Africa and Lesotho. It's the talk shop on SAFM.